So you guys, I went to go see John Oliver. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I have been meaning to ask you about this every time I've seen you this week and I keep forgetting. And then we get off of our call or whatever. And I'm like, John Oliver. (laughs) Thank God you brought this up. I keep forgetting to ask. So I'll post a picture that I took at the Kennedy Center where I saw him. I'll post it on our Instagram and our Facebook. I like to think that we're friends now, you know. (laughs) You know each other more intimately. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I email him. We're an email (laughs) correspondence, even if it is just (laughs) one-sided. Did you stalk him backstage? I couldn't get backstage. You know how it is at the Kennedy Center. Look, you have connections. I thought maybe you could work them. I don't know. It's kind of COVID-y. I didn't want to like... <laughs> you don't want to like come up to John Oliver and be like, I promise I'm not giving you COVID. Will you please come on our podcast? <laughs> so he was hilarious. But I will say there was one little part of it that was very disappointing. He goes into the story talking about a sports coach that he had in high school. And as part of the story, he talks about an interaction he had with this coach where he brings his instrument into the locker room. But he called it a violin, you guys. Stop it. Boo. My heart broke a little bit. Boo. And I, at like loud voice, not yelling, loud voice, I was like, of course, I'm covered up with a mask. I was like, Viola. (laughs) Viola. (laughs) The lady next to me looked at me. She was like, what? (laughs) I'm so proud of you. I should have stood up and yes. like yelled it, but I don't know, decorum and If you had stood up and been like, you played the viola. <laughs> Stop lying to these good people. <laughs> Quit spreading these lies. You know what makes me sad? You know why he did that? Because he didn't want to have to explain what a viola is. Yeah. And that wasn't the point of the joke. The joke was <sighs> something completely different. Rolling my eyes. So I understood why he did it, but... I was very disappointed in his choice. It's not okay. Mm-mm. So I think that's going to be part of my next email to him. <laughs> I mean, it's been about a year since you wrote him, right? It's time to write him again. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be like, you know, just checking in. Just want to <laughs> let you know. Per our last conversation, <laughs> I'm circling back. <laughs> yeah, I'm circling back. <laughs> As we do in the new year. <laughs> We're going to get him on the show. Yes, it's going to happen. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists creating a safe place to have authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. Oh, yeah. So with this Invisalign, this is not a sponsored ad. (laughs) This is not an endorsement yet. This is not an endorsement yet. But I mean, Invisalign hit me up. <laughs> anyway, you put these trays in. And of course, whenever you have anything in your mouth over your teeth, it affects the way you speak. Yes. And for the first like couple of days, I totally sounded like a toddler who's lost their front teeth <laughs> because it was like I had a lisp. Yes. And yeah, you can kind of hear it a little bit. I have to be very... You're doing really well. Okay, good. Are you practicing some articulating? I did practice a little bit. I'm sure our vocalist listeners could tell me exercises to do (laughs) to really make sure that I get rid of that. Oh, yeah. Hit us up. My husband also started Invisalign this past year. 
Oh, yeah? I don't know how many trays he's in. He's in like 12 or 13 trays now. But mm-hmm. when he first started, it was like, I can't understand a word <laughs> you're saying. <laughs> well, my husband and I are both doing it. Oh. So just imagine. <laughs> We're like a couple of teenagers who just got braces. We're like, yes. oh, my mouth hurts. <laughs> oh. Wait, do either of the girls have braces right now? Not yet. <laughs> Tali is be getting a- them later this month. Be hysterical if all of you had them at the same time. Is she getting the real braces or is yeah. she? Yeah. Yeah. Good old brackets on the teeth. Oh, yeah. Old school. Do they have the, <laughs> do they still have the ones that you can put? The different color rubber bands on? Yep. I'm sure she'll take advantage of that. She loves to be like a unicorn. Completely unique. Yeah. I remember like green and red around Christmas. Oh. I was definitely into the different color changes of the braces. That's cute. (laughs) My sister used to work for an orthodontist in Manhattan. And they had this like side business where they made bracelets out of those materials. It was a bracelet with the connective color of the rubber bands and then they put the brackets in it and it was just like a little like elastic bracelet but it was in all these different colors and it was kind of wild what yes i will have to look and see if i still have any i feel like i must have kept at least one but my sister gave us i don't even know how many of those i had back then wait so were these ones that had actually been on your teeth and in your mouth that they made into a bracelet (laughs) or the no, no. They okay. were just like, I don't know, the discarded rejects they couldn't use on teeth. That would be way insane. <laughs> it's like keeping your kids lost teeth. <laughs> on a bracelet. On a bracelet that you wear. Drill a hole through the baby teeth. Oh, and God. String- <laughs> oh, God. No. Do you know that when my brother and I got older, you know, we're always like snooping in my mom's room. My brother found a drawer full of our, our baby teeth. Stop. <laughs> Either our mom's into voodoo or... Okay, I, I'm i sorry to say, I bet there's a drawer of those somewhere in my mother's house too. <laughs> Oh, God. I'm sure there was like a sentimental thought that she just couldn't get rid of the baby teeth. I'm sure that's what it was because I was thinking as my children started to lose teeth, I was like, should I keep these? No, no. <laughs> and then I reflect back to my brother's grisly discovery. <laughs> the grisly discovery. <laughs> How many people's houses have little teeth? I hope there were just our teeth. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Your mom was like going around to the rest of the family being like, hey, if you don't want your children's baby teeth, I'll take them. Oh, my God. Oh, so disturbing. That's funny. (laughs) So. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We made it. We made it through 2021. Yeah. Much like the transition into 2021, though, the transition into 2022 has been pretty dramatic. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's very... (laughs) So we're recording this on January 6th. Mm -hmm. And I was just listening to our episode from last year that we recorded after January 6th. And we were just like kind of mind blown. Yeah. And I'm listening to this three-part series The Daily's put out. 
And it's all about January 6th, one year out. Mm. So I'm really feeling like I'm in a time warp, just <laughs> revisiting all the drama that happened on that day. Yeah. I mean, just, just to say that it's surprising how little has changed mm. over the past year in some aspects of our lives. Yeah. Politically, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we're stuck. That was a really rough day last year. I feel it a little bit today. There's definitely an energy about the day that it snuck up on me. Mm. I wasn't like anticipating January 6th, but now I'm like, oh, it's January 6th. Yeah. But a lot of good things happened last year too. Yes. I was just thinking about all that we did. And it really was, we did a lot of stuff last year. <laughs> yes. We packed it in. <laughs> we packed it in and we had a lot of conversations and met a lot of people that we didn't know. And mm -hmm. I mean, including obviously listeners who have become a part of our lives. Yes. Become friends. We're making friends. Yep. Even just having those conversations, we're feeling their reverberations. Yes. Even now. Yep. I'm thinking particularly of our union conversations and seeing articles pop up. Isn't that wild? In our... Yes, our local union paper and then the international musician. And I don't know if those are directly related to what we had to say, but I like to think that maybe they were a little bit. Yeah, I know. And I don't think that the union conversation is the only one. I think there have been many conversations that we've had. And then later on down the road, we discover someone else is exploring a similar thing. But that union one has been particularly interesting. Because we started out the year at our planning retreat, thinking about what would be really interesting topics to explore as freelancers as we go back to work. And the union came up for us kind of just in a vacuum. It wasn't like these conversations were happening before we scheduled it with Doug. Mm -hmm. And now here they are, and there are lots of ways to interpret that. But I think manifest is one of them. You know, you put these things out there. And then if enough people are feeling that pulse, whether that's from us or not, mm -hmm. it has been encouraging to see the response from the union to freelancers in the greater community. Mm -hmm. Reaching out. I definitely feel not as much as an afterthought, yeah. but more of, oh, let's bring these people into the conversation and make them feel welcome, which is nice. It's definitely a change. Totally. I think there's a lot more conversation to be had. How freelancers are a part of the fabric, is it different than some of the other communities of musicians that are part of that union? Mm -hmm. What was the, it said there were like 50,000 union members across 170 locals. Mm. How many of those people are freelancers? I would imagine, well, at least 50%. Wouldn't you think? Oh, yeah. Because orchestras, like full-time paying orchestras, are what? Like 150 musicians? Yep. Tops? And how many of those are there? Not that many. Yeah. So I think it's safe to assume that over 50% of that 50,000 are freelancers yep. of some variety. Yeah. And you and I are talking a lot about this still. I mean, this is a conversation that we're continuing even off the pod and with friends, with colleagues. I think we both are really interested in maybe the possibility of actually getting some statistics on this. Mm -hmm. Like, what does our community look like? Who is our community? How big is our community? 
how do we define ourselves? There's so many questions that are not answered about that. Maybe it's time to start answering those questions. Mm -hmm. So if you know of a way to get those kind of numbers, then please let us know. Uh, We'll be researching that, but we just want to get to know who you are. Yeah, absolutely. So I also was listening back to a year ago, and I I was listening to the intro of Robin's episode when Mm -hmm. we were literally just coming on to a new year. That was cool to do. What do you think about 2022? I'm just hoping that I can continue the trends that I started last year. Yep. You know, just trying to get in touch with what I really want and need and vocalize that. Yeah. (laughs) Why is that so hard? (laughs) Life. (laughs) A lifetime of understanding about the way we're supposed to do things. Mm. Mm -hmm. For me, it's funny because I mentioned boundaries in that episode and... That's definitely something I still want to keep working on. I think it all starts with a step. As I say to myself, (laughs) it's something that I've told people I've been in conversation with on many occasions. Look, you made this small change. That's a huge victory. But turning that in on yourself Mm -hmm. is so hard. It's being gentle with yourself and having the same kind of expectations you would have for other people for yourself. Yes. Giving yourself the grace that you would give to others. Yes. I also want to reference our practice group just because it's been so much fun. Yeah, I love those guys. We have our Joy Loves Company practice group. We're about almost halfway through Susanna Klein's Practisma practice journal. And we have just this lovely group of musicians who are joining us on a weekly basis. And the conversations we're having with them are just awesome. It's just been wonderful. I just thought of that because we were talking about this very thing. Mm -hmm. The long thread of growth that just exists throughout our entire lives, either personally, in our music, whatever it might be, there may be like goalposts along the way. In our case, of course, we're talking about audition, or maybe there's a performance you have coming up, something like that. That's not the end. That's just one little marker along the way of progress. Mm -hmm. Something very comforting about that. Yeah, I've loved finding joy in practice. And I really think that practice is such a solitary activity. Mm -hmm. It's easy to get in your head about certain things. And sometimes just the act of talking with someone else about what you're experiencing, saying it out loud, it will almost resolve a lot of issues right away. Because you're like, oh, I just said that out loud and that seems crazy. Or it seems unrealistic. Or I'm really beating myself up over that. Yeah. Or, you know, it's having sounding board, like a good friend or a group of uh, like-minded musician friends is really grounding. Yes. Yes. Grounding. Amen. Mm-hmm. Support. Yes. Yeah. And it's nice to be part of a community that is supporting. I feel sort of compelled to say to anyone listening out there that feels a little isolated with their playing right now, maybe you start your own practice group. Maybe you have a buddy and you just check in with each other because I think that creation of support also helps to maybe minimize the feeling of insecurity and competition that exists sometimes. And I think we can all resonate with the feeling of 
not wanting to share our practice struggles or not wanting to play for other people because we don't want to be judged. And if you know that you have someone or someones who can be a source of really kind support for you, and that's a safe place, it really helps to eliminate some of those sort of toxic feelings we have about sharing ourselves with other people. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Because it really draws you back into reality. You can get really in your head yeah. and make up a lot of shit that isn't true. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very cool. That's been a great little treat this year to have that group. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad we did that. So thank you, Susanna, too. <laughs> yes, we're the gift that keeps on giving. Yes. The Practisma practice journal. <laughs> so for the new year, we are rounding out our conversation with Molly Gabrian. Oh, yes. So speak of circling back. <laughs> we're circling back to Molly and it's all good stuff. She's got so much information that's backed by research and I just love knowing the inside scoop about how you learn. Yes. I feel like I'm getting like inside information, you know? Yes. Mm -hmm. When she explains it down to the, like, this is literally what happens in your brain when you're learning something. That is amazing to me. I absolutely love it. Yeah. It's very special that we have somebody in our community, a violist mm -hmm. in the music community who is doing this kind of work. And I love practical tips. So you're going to hear a little bit of that in this conversation. And hopefully you can take something from this conversation today, if you choose to, right into your practice room or wherever you are enjoying music today. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So we're in for a great 2022. I'm excited. Yes. And what a great way to start it off with this wonderful conversation with Molly Gebrian. And this is part two of The Mirror Lies. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Hello, all. Liz and Steph here. As you know, Liz and I choose our sponsors because we really and truly value authenticity. We can talk most easily about things that we love and use regularly, which is why Potter Violins is such a natural partnership. Yes, Steph and I both have been taking our violas to potters for years because we know they're a shop that really knows about violas. Their luthiers are some of the best in the country, and I trust them completely with my wooden baby. And not only that, but I'm actually bow shopping right now, which can be overwhelming. But I always go to potters first because I trust them to help me find the perfect one for my instrument and playing style. Yep, both Steph and I found our violas there. Bottom line is that we both love the Potters team, and we're thrilled to welcome them as a Season 2 sponsor. If you're interested in learning more about what they offer, you can find them at potterviolins.com and at potterviolins on Instagram. As a teacher, one of my main goals is to get each of my students set up for success right from the start. And part of that process is trying to find the shoulder rest solution that gives each of them freedom of movement and provides for tension-free playing. Yes, but I always feel like I'm jerry-rigging one solution or another by adding extra pads or making a fussy ad hoc version to fit a student's body. Totally. That's why I was so excited to learn that there are arc rests in different sizes, even one for my youngest students, itty bitty violas and violins. It's called the shoulder buddy and uh, it's basically the cutest thing you have ever seen. Oh my gosh, you guys, it comes in colors. 
So now your students can pick their favorite color and get a simple shoulder pad solution that will set them up for long-term comfort and a great sound, since we all know that those tiny instruments could use all the resonance help they can get. If you're a teacher and are interested in having a few on hand to try with your students, reach out to Erin and Tigran at thearcrest.com, or you can also find them on Instagram at thearcrest. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T. It's very clear just by what we've talked about so far that you are so dedicated to your students and what you're cultivating there. What about performing for you? I feel like this is a weird thing to say as a performer. I don't like to perform. Mm. I find it very, very uncomfortable. I love to practice. I absolutely love to practice. I love to rehearse. I find my favorite time is the dress rehearsal Mm. because it's really well prepared. Everybody's playing really well, especially like chamber music or something like that, right? But there's no audience, there's no pressure. Yeah. The performance to me feels like <laughs> like an unnecessary burden or something. Like, let's just stop after the dress rehearsal. Like, do we actually have to do the performance? <laughs> and so it's this weird quandary. Because I also can't conceive of not performing. Yeah. That also seems very weird to me that I would get something to an incredibly high level ready to perform and then just not perform. That doesn't make sense. Right. It's just this weird tension that I've always dealt with. Like I was saying earlier, like it's really important for me to, and it always has been, to play music outside the standard canon, to introduce audiences to music and composers that they haven't heard before. Mm -hmm. And that's just an important value for me, but it also makes performing more comfortable because it's not about me, especially if I'm introducing audiences to a piece I'm pretty confident they have never, ever heard before. Or if it's a premiere, I know they've never heard it before, right? (laughs) It's definitely not about me. It's about the piece. But yeah, the pandemic has been interesting because most performers have been like, oh my God, I need to perform. This is terrible. Like, I miss performing so much. And I'm just like, this is great. Like, (laughs) there's there's no pressure to perform. You get to just practice. You get to just practice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I did two online pre-recorded concerts during the pandemic. Recording is also kind of terrible, right? Because you can do as many <laughs> takes as you want and you feel like you should be able to get a perfect take, even though you know you you can't and you kind of have to choose the one that's the least painful. Totally. But it's not like I would rather perform in that way. So <laughs> it's a whole bunch of contradictions, right? But it is still very important to me to perform and very important to me to perform music that I feel should have wider recognition and appreciation that doesn't for some reason. And I feel a responsibility because I have had the privilege of having this amazing training in viola. Yeah. I have those skills. I should use those skills to further the work of composers who I think are worthy of having their work out in the world. Mm -hmm. It's so good. Well, bringing it back to practice, I really enjoyed watching the series of videos that you have on YouTube about what science can teach us about practicing. And I loved this analogy that you made about the neural pathways and fixing mistakes. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? So yeah, the analogy I make is that, you know, neural pathways are like pathways through the snow. If you live in a snowy place, they shovel the walkways, but people often make shortcuts, right? Mm -hmm. And they just like cut through the snow. And the more people walk on that shortcut, the more kind of established the shortcut becomes, and then more people are likely to take it. And so it's the same thing in our brains. The more times we use a neural pathway, it gets kind of ingrained in our brain. It makes it easier to use that pathway in the future. And that's exactly what we want to happen not for bad habits, but for the things we want. The danger becomes when you start inadvertently 
reinforcing a pathway that you don't actually want because you're practicing in sort of a mindless way, which leads to bad habits. Mm -hmm. When I do these presentations, either like in person or over Zoom, I often ask students how they practice. And two of the most common practice methods for students is starting at the beginning, playing until they make a mistake, and then either they fix their mistake and they go on, or they start over again and they try to do it the second time without their mistake. The problem with that practice method is you've still made the mistake. And so it's like another person taking that shortcut that goes off somewhere that you don't want. It reinforces that pathway. And so you're more likely to use that pathway and therefore make that mistake in the future. Pathways that are very well-worn in our brains, they feel automatic. The analogy I often use in that presentation is that by the time you get to like fifth grade, writing your name is automatic, right? You don't have to think anymore about how do I spell my name? How do I write this letter? Mm -hmm. It's totally automatic. It's very, very easy to do. If you've been, for some reason, writing your name wrong for all those years, <laughs> it would be really hard to write your name correctly, right? You'd have to really think about it because <laughs> you would have been doing it wrong all those years. And so it's the same thing with playing. If you've been doing something wrong over and over and over, it becomes really automatic and very difficult to correct because your brain just it's kind of like an automatic program that just kind of like runs itself and you get to the end and you're like wait a minute this is not where i want to be <laughs> and so being very mindful when we're practicing of which pathway are you reinforcing and i think the reinforcement of things we don't want i think it's almost always by accident i don't think anybody sets out to be like i am always going to play sharp right it's just <laughs> we practice in such a way that leads to that and then we don't like the result and we get frustrated and we wonder like why do I always mess this up? Well, think about how you practiced. It led you to that point based on how the brain works. Your brain only knows, is something being reinforced, yes or no? If the answer is yes, that means it must be good. Let's use it, <laughs> even though it may not be. Wow. So the one thing that comes to mind for me right now that's just ringing all these bells is orchestral excerpts because I'm kind of in that world right now. Don Juan, yes. <laughs> which is something that we all learned probably since we were 18 19, 20, 70. Literally, I was like envisioning the opening of Don Juan as Molly was talking. Okay, so we've all tread that path in the snow oh, yeah. so many oh, times. Painful. How do you undo a pathway that you have trod so many times that it feels like it's just a part of your being? Yep, that's really frustrating, right? Yeah. <laughs> there are sort of two methods of undoing really deeply ingrained bad habits that seem to work really, really well. They haven't been tried on musicians yet. The research has been done on like athletes and stuff like that. But what athletes do is very akin to what we do. We are athletes. Yeah, we are. Small muscle athletes. Yep. Thanks, Susanna. Exactly. <laughs> One of the methods is to whatever the issue is, whatever the mistake is, is to exaggerate that to make it more obvious to yourself. Because sometimes something goes wrong and you like sort of know what the issue is, but not enough to actually do something about it. And so if you're able to exaggerate it, that means you actually understand what the issue is and therefore it's easier to undo. Whoa, that's so counterintuitive. Totally. Yeah. The other way, and I, I use this a lot with students to like correct bow hold or something like that. It's called old way, new way, is to first get good video evidence of the bad habit, mm -hmm. the old way. And in the context with students, watch with a student. Like every time you play an up bow, your first finger does this weird thing or whatever. Get video evidence and watch so that the student can see very clearly what they're doing, but they also understand what you are seeing. 
and then have the student describe, okay, what does this feel like? Their bad habit way of describe as clearly as they can. What does it feel like to do whatever they're doing? Then have them do the new way, whatever that may be. So if they're doing a weird first finger thing, keep your first finger bent or something. Do the new way and then describe what the new way feels like as clearly as possible. Then do the old way, the bad habit way again, describe that as clearly as possible, then do the new way. So go back and forth. The research seems to suggest you need to do that five or six times going back and forth between old way, new way, old way, new way. So you're comparing and contrasting them. The explaining in words out loud, this is what this feels like, seems to be a really important part of the process. Students get a little bit after they've explained it, like for the third time, they're like, you know what I'm going to say? I'm like, it's not about telling me. It's about telling yourself (laughs) and making it like very, very clear. That seems to work really well for students. And if it's something like sometimes with correcting bowl holds, it's like five different problems that are all sort of working together. Like the shoulder's doing something weird, the elbow's doing something weird, the wrist is doing something weird, and the fingers are doing something weird. And so I will attack the problem one at a time. So like we're just paying attention to what your thumb is doing. We do old way, new way with the thumb. Then we do old way, new way with the wrist or, you know, whatever it may be. And by the time we've gone through that process, and for something like a bow arm issue that has multiple problems, it does take the whole hour lesson time, but it's worth it because it solves it. Wow. Wow. So that's my solution. Oh, that's so good. I've never thought about doing that before. (laughs) It works really, really well. And I mean, the thing with old habits, bad habits, the reason they're so persistent is we don't have very good conscious access to them Mm -hmm. anymore. We just do them and we're not super aware that we are doing them. What the exaggeration idea does and what old way, new way does is it makes it very conscious what the old habit is. So it's much easier to get rid of. Mm. So as a teacher, this is great because you can see what's happening with your student. You have that feedback. You're giving them that feedback. For us in the practice room, best way to do this probably is to have video in front of you, right? Absolutely. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. And not the mirror. No. And not the mirror. Yes. I'm addicted to my mirror. I think I might have to take my mirror out of my studio, actually. I practiced with a mirror like forever, right? Because that's what you're told to do. Yes. Look in the mirror, right? Mm-hmm. And my practice spaces always had mirrors in them. And then I lived in France for a year before I lived in Germany. And the apartment I was living in, the only place I could really practice was in the bedroom. And there was a mirror there, but the only way to see myself in the mirror was to stand on the bed. And so, like, I'm not going to stand <laughs> on the bed and that's practice, right. <laughs> right? That seems really unsafe. <laughs> so I essentially could not see myself in the mirror and like the bathroom was so small that it was not possible to play in there and so it was the first time in my life i hadn't had a mirror and suddenly things got solved a lot faster than they used to so i haven't had a mirror in my practice space in 10 years because of that and if i want to see what something looks like i'm going to video it it makes so much sense to think about and i'm sure there are people listening that are going to be like but why wouldn't you at least have the mirror in front of you but if you're performing or auditioning or any of those things, you can't see what you, you don't look have a like. mirror. You can't right. see and you can't react in real time. And it, it dawned on me very late the last time I did any audition prep. It was like too little too late. I had spent all this time in front of the mirror correcting my mistakes. And then I took video of myself maybe two weeks before. And I was like, Oh, my God, I'm doing all the things like I've literally been training myself not to do. They're just happening anyway. And the research on feedback finds that simultaneous feedback, which is what a mirror is, Mm -hmm. inhibits people from really 
feeling what's going on and developing a kinesthetic awareness of what it feels like. Yes. Even if you try to do that, even if you're aware that like, okay, I need to pay attention to what this feels like. Humans are just such visual creatures. You can't shut off your eyes. And so when the only way to develop that kinesthetic awareness of this is what it feels like, or even aural awareness, this is what it sounds like, is to not have that simultaneous feedback, is to video it. You can't see, but you can feel, and then watch your video and compare what you felt to what you see. I feel so validated by you talking about that because I've always felt like there was something wrong with me for not being able to hear something in the moment that I am playing. Nope. Yes. And just having that, validation that it is scientifically well, research has shown that it's hard for us to separate those two things like being the performer and being the observer right yeah the classic thing for string players is straight bow how do we teach students to straighten out their bow look in the mirror no that's the worst possible thing you can do to learn how to play with a straight bow <laughs> i played with a crooked bow until i got to graduate school and I got to NEC and Carol was like, you play far too well to play with a crooked bow. We need to fix this. And it's not like I didn't know. I'd been told since I was seven when I started that my bow mm -hmm. was crooked. Yep. And I worked on it all the time looking in the mirror. But I didn't know what it felt like to play with a straight bow. I was straightening it out with my eyes in the mirror. And so it was only when I stopped looking in the mirror that I figured it out. Mm. So that suggests that the cue that we should rely on first is maybe not how something looks, maybe not watching your fingers, but how it feels to play a certain way. So it's that kinesthetic time. Exactly. Oh, totally. I mean, the place where the mirror can really help is if like if a student has a bad habit of sticking their wrist way too far in or sticking their wrist way too far out, rather than having their wrist straight when they're holding the instrument, that can feel to them like if their wrist is way sticking out, it can feel like it's straight because they've just gotten so used to that. That feels normal. Totally. And a straight wrist can feel like it's like a pizza wrist, like bent all the way in. Mm -hmm. Our sense of our own bodies and space can be really distorted, actually. And so a mirror can help a student see like, oh, well, my wrist is straight. It does not feel like it's straight right now, but it is straight. I had a student once who played with lap knees all the time. <laughs> and so we really worked on that. And I remember one lesson, I was like, your knees are great. And they were like, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. What do you mean? And they were like, I feel like I'm crouching down on the ground. Like my knees are really, really, really bent. And the mirror in my teaching space wasn't long enough to show their legs, just their torso. And so I took a picture with my phone of their legs from the side so they could see. And I showed it to them. And they were like, oh my God, that is not at all what it feels like to me. And so a mirror can be helpful in that way to sort of correct those body distortion things that happen when we have one habit and we're trying to move to a new habit, but only at the very beginning. And then once, yes, okay, I know what straight feels like, then get away from the mirror. I have had both of those experiences of <laughs> unlocking my knees and being like, I'm hunched over like a football player. Yep, like there's no right. way this looks normal. And I've had students feed that back to me. And with my wrist, it wasn't until Molly's warm up groups in the pandemic time. This is when this kinesthetic sense really started to develop for myself. I had the overcorrection of the wrist my entire life as a performer, that dysmorphic struggle that a lot of us have. I think the mirror becomes addictive for that. Yes. It's so great to say like, yes, you don't need it. It's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It was that year in France when I literally could not practice in front of the mirror. It was really great. So what I'm hearing is that we all need to go to France yes. in order to become better violists. <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> Sign me up. So you, Molly, you're just like the 
quintessential scientist and you're always experimenting and you're always creating new ways of looking at things and discovering. What are you most excited about right now that you're getting into and learning about? On the performance side of things, what I'm most excited about, this project has been, it was supposed to be finished like in 2020, which obviously didn't happen. But the performance project I'm working on right now is there are three late romantic era cello sonatas by women composers that nobody plays. Cellos never play them. And they work really well on the viola. So I've made viola transcriptions of them. And I was supposed to record them in early 2020, perform them a bunch. And obviously that didn't happen. So I'm performing these for the first time, hopefully in January, um, recording them in the spring. So I'm really excited about it because it's great music. And it fills a gap in our repertoire as violists, right? We don't Mm -hmm. have that many sonatas that filled that bill. So that's something I'm super excited about. In terms of brain stuff, so all the videos that I make, I read 50 to 100 original research papers in preparation for all of those videos to make sure I understand the current state of the field. So all of them are things that like, I know about, I know what the research says, but I want to make sure I'm up to date. Um, And then from that giant load of papers, I distill it down to, okay, what's the narrative that I'm going to tell here? Which are the papers I'm going to use that illustrate the points the most clearly? Often, which have the best looking graphs that it's the most obvious when you look at it? What's going on? And then how can musicians use this? I can really only do that work in the summer or during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the next set of videos that I really want to make is about mental practicing, because I have always thought that mental practicing is amazing. And... I have a video ready to go. The research has been done since like July. I just haven't had time to make it. Will that get made before May? Probably not. (laughs) But that's the next one that I want to make. There's a little bit about mental practicing in the series on what musicians can learn about practicing from current brain research, but to sort of expand on that and go in more detail, because there's a lot more to it than I was able to talk about in that little short thing. Oh, I look forward to that. I cannot wait. Me too. I love the idea of mental practice. I know that a lot of research backs up its efficacy. And it's exciting to me to not have the instrument in my hands for all of my practice, because it's a lot of wear and tear on your body. If I had heard the word mental practice when I was in college, I would have laughed. It was like, that that was just, that's not the way that you practice your instrument. It's all like in the practice room, it's shredding, it's refining, it's whatever with a drone, whatever it is. The idea that you don't have to beat your body up quite as much in order to get that same, even kinesthetic feel for what you're doing. That's a really exciting thing to give to our students and to ourselves. This is what was such a revelation to me in thinking about it is that our brain and Molly, you will know a little more about the details than I will, but has to do X number of things when we're playing music that have nothing to do with moving our body. Right. And so to take the movement piece away and give your brain the time to like understand what it has to do before you put the movement piece in, it is a revelation. And of course, I'm just talking about the surface level understanding, but it is amazing, amazing. Oh, it's totally amazing. The other thing too, with wear and tear on the body I did this huge pandemic experiment on myself. That was kind of the first thing I did in the pandemic. Learning takes place during breaks. Learning does not take place when you are practicing. It takes place when you are taking breaks. That is the most counterintuitive thing ever, 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 right? Yes. It's so good. And the thing that I'm experimenting with in my practicing right now, there was a study that came out over the summer that's gotten a lot of attention. Noah Kageyama did a one of his weekly things on it. Mm-hmm. They had people learn this button press sequence on just like a computer keyboard. And so they would practice it 
for 10 seconds, then they'd take a 10 second break. Then they'd practice it for 10 seconds, then they'd take a 10 second break, like on and on like this. And they found that the vast majority of the improvement they made in doing this button press sequence happened during the 10 second break, not when they were actually practicing it, but during the break. And that during that break, the brain would replay the sequence 20 times faster. So like super fast replay of this thing that they had practiced. It also did it backwards, which they don't really understand why, but it was not weird. That is incredible. You know, we talk about doing repetitions. Repetitions are definitely important, but you learn the most when you're not actually doing the repetition. (laughs) In the videos that you were talking about, I talk about doing something like a certain number of times in a row, like doing something like five times in a row or 10 times in a row. And that I do think is really important that you can consistently do it. You know, if you can only do it once or twice, what are the chances that you're going to be able to do it the next time? Probably not very good. But what I've been experimenting with is instead of like doing it five times in a row, I'll do it three times in a row and then take a little break and just stand there for, I don't count to 10. I just stand there for however many seconds. And then I'm like, okay, I'll do three more times in a row. Take another little break, three more times. That's nine times I did it in a row, but I had two breaks. It works a lot better. Wow. And I can feel after that short little break that it's easier. It's very weird. So I've been experimenting with that. Also sticks better, which isn't surprising, right? That's what all the science says. But that is like so, so anti the world of classical music and practicing. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, there needs to be a huge sort of revolution in terms of how we think about when do we actually make the most progress in our practicing? It's when we are not practicing. What? Yeah. Can you imagine like that bleeding into rehearsals? Yeah, that would be nice. Just something about the mindset shift of that like drive through as many things as you can get in a period of time or just holding the viola for two hours in the practice or whatever. I know we've been easing away from that for a long time in terms of breaks, but down to this nuclear of taking a 10 second break in between repetitions so that your brain has time to catch up on the information it's receiving. Yep. Can you imagine in an orchestral setting? the conductor running you through a certain really tough passage at a certain tempo and then everyone just sitting there in silence for 10 seconds and then doing it again just let it in yes ah it's so good i don't know if things will ever change but like (laughs) i sometimes feel like the way we practice and rehearse now is so uninformed by how we actually learn and how our brains work it's like how they used to do surgery back in the day they would put leeches on people (laughs) oh wait we need to wash our hands (laughs) (laughs) you know the way they used to do medicine now is so like what in the world were you doing right that's so laughable how ridiculous it was i wonder if 200 years in the future or something the way that we practice practice and rehearse now, it will be similarly laughable because it's just like, that's not how the brain learns. Yeah. It seems so simple when we talk about it like this. So how do we disseminate all this information so the right people hear it? I think that, I don't know. I mean, that's part of the reason I made my YouTube videos is because one of the things that's been really important to me. So I was talking at the beginning, like I thought Oberlin would be the end of the neuroscience. And then obviously it wasn't. It wasn't because I got to NEC and I was like, wait a minute, this something's not right here. Like I'm missing something. Mm. My roommate at NEC who had been at Oberlin with me, she's a violinist. She participated in a study at Harvard looking at musicians versus non-musicians brains. And she was a subject in the study. And she came home and was telling me about it. And I got all excited. And I was like, okay, I'm missing this. Like I really, really miss this. And so I was like, okay, how am I going to study neuroscience at NEC? That's not a thing. But they allowed me to do a number of independent studies looking at 
things I was interested in. And the first independent study that I did was actually looking at the research on learning and memory and applying it to musicians. And that YouTube video, What Musicians Can Learn About Practicing from Current Brain Research, that grew directly out of that independent study. Mm. And when I was doing that, I was like, this needs to be communicated to musicians. There is such great research out there that we just don't know. Mm -hmm. And there aren't many people that can communicate that I need to do this because I have the neuroscience knowledge and I have the music knowledge to be able to translate it. It's been really important to me to try to bring this to as many people as possible. And so, yeah, the pandemic and YouTube, here's another way that I can get this information out to people. Yes. It's really interesting because it brings me back to university culture. You go to school for music performance if you're serious about your instrument and you want to be a performer and that's what you do. And it was challenging in a lot of places to even consider exploring something else alongside of that degree. I think that that culture is shifting too. I've had students who are really fantastic musicians who are serious about music, but are choosing to go somewhere where they have the flexibility to add something to that. And it doesn't have to be this, you know, you're not a serious musician if you study something in addition. And I think you set a really great template for that. What's the culture like at U of A? I think that... One of the things that was so great about Oberlin is that everybody at Oberlin was on board with the double degree program, the conservatory and the college. And that I didn't realize at the time, but is very unique. I think at most schools, even if it's possible to do it, there are a few people that are like very supportive of it, but it's either outright discouraged or it's kind of implied that it's discouraged. Here at the U of A, I mean, obviously I'm very <laughs> supportive of it, but not everybody is in the same boat. Some parts of the university are very supportive of it. Other parts are really, really, really not supportive of it to the point of saying, you may not do this, this is not allowed, which to me is really terrible and disappointing. I will say that in the music department, it seems that most people are very supportive yeah. of it. What are your hopes for students that come out of your studio? That's a great question. My, I mean, my overarching hope is that I make myself obsolete, that I give them the skills to practice, to prepare for performance, to listen, to play in such a way that they're not going to hurt themselves, to choose music, that they have those skills that they can go out in the world and not need me anymore. My hope is that I give them the skills to solve problems that they've never encountered before. Maybe they don't know how to do this and we never ever talked about it in their lessons, but they have a skill set that enables them to figure out, okay, how do I approach this piece of music or this style of music or this organizational problem of, you know, getting prepared for all this stuff or whatever. That's my hope. I love that. There's so many great things that we've touched on here. I mean, I really feel like we've run the gambit with you. <laughs> yes. This might actually have to be a two-parter, Molly. It's fine. <laughs> I know. It's so good. There's so many things. Thank you so much. Oh, sure. It's just been, oh, it's been a blast. So energizing to talk to you. Hopefully we can proselytize for you. There we go. I mean, that's, we were talking about the gross side of social media and the sort of self-promotion thing. Like I've gotten emails from people like, you need to start a Patreon and you need to advertise. I'm like, no, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in the information being out there. Self-promotion to me is so maybe that's why I'm a violist, right? <laughs> it's just like, so like, no, yeah, I do yeah. not want to have anything to do with that whatsoever. Yep. It is un way uncomfortable. Yeah, maybe. 
Yes, for violists all around. Right? We do not like to be in the spotlight. We don't like to be like, hey, it's me. Uh We like to be the people that collaborate and facilitate things happen and support each other. Absolutely. But that idea of making sure the information is out there that resonates with us very deeply too. Yep. Yes. I'm excited to put out this information. So much so. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season two sponsor, Arkrest. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Our episodes are produced by Liz O'Hara Starr. The Viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogerman and is performed by Steph and myself. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.